Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton of Geopolitical Economy Report. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with a friend of the show, the economist Michael Hudson. And I'm very excited to be discussing his newest book, The Collapse of Antiquity, Greece and Rome as Civilization's Oligarchic Turning Point. This book is an absolute tour de force. It's an incredible work, not only of economic history, but simply, I would say, anthropology and economic archaeology. I think it really shows that many people know Michael Hudson for his work on economics and finance, but I would say that a book like this shows that he's also an economic anthropologist or an economic archaeologist, and he goes through and, and details essentially the history of the emergence of the modern financial system and it, with its roots back in classical Greece and Rome, and the role, the, the defining role of debt in the development of all of these political models. And this is a book focused on classical antiquity. So it goes from about the 8th century of BC or BCE until the 5th century AD uh, or CE. In, in his book, Michael uses BC. So I'll use that um, for the dates. And Michael starts, I mean, this is a 500 page book. He starts discussing the emergence of interest-bearing debt and the emergence of classical Greece in the 8th century BC. And then he goes through classical Greece and then classical Rome, the emergence of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, the rise of Christianity and the influence on political culture today. So, Michael, I mean, there's so much that I want to ask you about. This is a fascinating book. And... I want to start with a very general overview. This is the second in a trilogy that you're writing, which is a history of debt. The first installment is And Forgive Them Their Debts. Why in 2023 or in the past few years, why have you spent so much time writing about the, the emergence of debt and this history from 2000 years ago? Uh, why do you think it's so relevant for us today in the 21st century? Many people think that uh, debt and the payment of interest and uh, the fact that uh, all debtors uh, uh, have to pay their debts and the uh, it's assumed that the rules of finance are universal. They've always been this way and that there is no alternative. Uh, and you could say that the political message of modern economic history is there is no alternative and there never has been an alternative. Therefore, there is not any alternative in the future. Uh, all debts have to be paid and uh, creditor interests have to take priority over uh, debtor interests and uh, those of the indebted society as a whole. Well, uh, beginning in the 1980s, I thought of writing along a history of uh, how countries were ruined by uh, their uh, foreign creditors. Uh, I began really in the uh, eighth, uh, 18th and 19th century. Uh, then I, I went back to uh, classical antiquity. And uh, I found out by about 1982 that there was this whole un undiscovered uh, or unwritten about area of uh, the ancient Near East uh, and debt cancellations. And since uh, what I'd been writing in the 1970s was all about the fact that the third world countries, uh, the global majority, 
cannot pay their foreign debts, uh, the fact that uh, uh, early societies coped with the debt problem not by letting the creditors foreclose and property passing into their hands, but uh, by writing down the debts so that they would maintain a balance between what was owed and what could be paid. And uh, the uh, uh, it spent, uh, it took about 25 years uh, working uh, with Harvard uh, University that put together, or let me put together, a, uh, uh, a group of Assyriologists and Egyptologists and anthropologists uh, to look at the uh, very origins of debt and economic relations and uh, privatization and land ownership and land rent in the ancient Near East. And I wanted to uh, start really at the beginning and uh, look at how the original idea of uh, debt service, of uh, interest payments, of uh, land tenure uh, were all put in place uh, already in uh, the third millennium BC and how these dynamics changed over time. Uh, and that took me until about uh, 2015 uh, from, uh, I, I think, 1994 through 2015 to write the uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, five volumes of colloquia that I published there. And uh, then I began to uh, follow up well, what happened in antiquity. And I, I subtitled that book, The, uh, the uh, Turning Point. Uh, most people think of uh, Greece and Rome and Western civilization as begin uh, just the beginning of everything, uh, as if somehow Greece and Rome of uh, uh, developed their economic practices and their social practices out of uh, primitive tribes that somehow developed. Uh, a lot of this was uh, uh, simple racism, uh, that it had to be the Anglo-Saxons that uh, developed uh, the economics. Uh, it couldn't have been uh, the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, uh, much less uh, uh, Easterners uh, who, who did any of this. And by starting the history with Greece and Rome, uh, you missed the point that uh, they were sort of on the periphery of 3,000 years of development from Sumer to Babylonia to uh, Assyria uh, to uh, uh, Judea and uh, uh, Israel. Uh, to all of these uh, Near Eastern countries had a common uh, practice, and the common practice was uh, what uh, the uh, uh, Jewish religion called uh, the Jubilee year, the uh, cancellations of uh, uh, debts in the 50th year that was put at the very center of uh, Mosaic law in uh, Leviticus chapter 25. And uh, the Jewish uh, laws were taken uh, word for word from the Babylonian practice. Uh, you'd cancel the debts, uh, personal debts, not the commercial debts, but the personal debts that were due. You'd, uh, re you'd liberate the bond servants that were pledged, and you'd uh, restore lands to people who lost them. And uh, that way, uh, you prevented an oligarchy from developing and taking over uh, all of the land. Well, uh, what happened uh, in the 8th century BC was there was a, a really bad climate from about 1200 BC 
to about 800 BC. Uh, there was uh, 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 populations couldn't make it on the land that they lived on. Uh, the, there was a great population movement. There was a great shrinkage of population. And uh, there was uh, really it's a, a dark age. Writing disappeared. Uh, and uh, so, uh, before 1200 BC, you had syllabic uh, scripts. And uh, uh, when writing was reinvented, it was uh, the alphabetic script uh, from uh, the Phoenician uh, countries and then uh, uh, the Jewish lands. And uh, when uh, when gradually you had in this dark age sort of warlords or mafia families uh, taking over local uh, districts and local cities. And classical historians themselves have used the term mafiosi uh, states uh, for these small cities. Uh, Greece and Rome were very different uh, environments from the Near East. All of the Near Eastern uh, countries had kings, uh, had uh, uh, central rulers, and the role of central unit rulers was really to uh, preserve economic balance, to preserve a, a an army, a fighting force of citizenry that would uh, fight to either defend or sometimes attack uh, uh, enemies. Uh, and the idea was kings didn't want an independent oligarchy to develop because if an oligarchy developed, uh, they would end up uh, with uh, indebting the population and uh, the indebted population would lose its lands to the oligarchy and uh, would have to go and work for uh, uh, the, uh, the creditors. And uh, if they had to work for the creditors, then they couldn't serve in the army and they wouldn't be available for the public infrastructure projects. Well, all of this is what I talked about in the first volume and forgive them their debts. But the uh, Greece and Rome in the West didn't have any uh, practice like that. So uh, gradually, you had the revival of trade uh, along the Mediterranean and the Aegean uh, in the 8th century BC. And you had uh, Syrian traders, Phoenician traders coming, and uh, they brought weights and measures uh, and uh, commercial practices uh, to Greece and to uh, Italy. And these practices uh, included uh, charging of debt. Uh, there was no indication of charging uh, of debt in Greece or uh, anywhere else in the Mediterranean uh, before the 8th century uh, in the uh, Mycenaean culture uh, uh, before 1200 BC. There was no interest-bearing debt. Uh, but uh, th this was brought uh, to Greece and Rome, and this was something completely novel. And the uh, the mafiosi leaders of local cities uh, uh, immediately did what uh, wealthy people would have liked to have done in uh, uh, Judea uh, and Babylonia. They would have liked to make loans uh, to uh, debtors who uh, would pledge their land and mostly their labor. And uh, then uh, the debtors would have to work off their debts uh, by working for the creditors. And ultimately, they'd lose their land and uh, they'd be uh, absorbed uh, in a dependency relation to the creditors. Well, uh, uh, th that uh, uh, was prevented from happening in the Near East because rulers prevented it. And uh, uh, if they didn't prevent it, 
they would be overthrown. Well, by the 8th century, uh, you had a similar uh, revolutionary process occurring in Greece and Rome. Uh, starting in Corinth, uh, you had uh, reformers, usually from the uh, leading families, saying, look, uh, this is an awful way to, or we, we can't just have a dictatorship and impoverish everybody just to make uh, uh, these uh, mafiosi families uh, uh, rich. Uh, we've going to overthrow them, we're going to cancel the debts, and we're going to redistribute the land. And they were called tyrants. The word tyrant meant uh, someone who paved the way for democracy by liberating the population from debt dependency, by, uh, by uh, creating uh, a popular uh, support instead of just a very concentrated, polarized land ownership. Same thing in, uh, in Italy. The uh, Roman kings, according to the Roman historians, uh, all prevented a, uh, uh, an oligarchy from developing by uh, uh, making sure that uh, the uh, the people who came to Rome were, would be, have their own uh, access to land, they wouldn't lose it to creditors, uh, and uh, to make sure that the kings wouldn't represent the oligarchy, uh, Rome uh, would appoint kings from other regions. They wouldn't appoint one of their own leading families as kings. They were always an outsider. Uh, Persia had had the same practice of uh, making sure that you uh, uh, Persian cities would have outside uh, rulers so that they wouldn't uh, get involved in the internecine uh, conflicts and favoritism among families. Well, uh, what happened in, in Rome was uh, finally uh, you had uh, a, a, a Rome became a magnet for uh, people who uh, ran away from a very centralized uh, mafiosa-like uh, states. And uh, uh, all of the Roman history was, well, it was originally settled by fugitives. Well, fugitives were runaways in flight. And uh, this practice of uh, flight had happened you find it all the way through the Bronze Age in Mesopotamia. Uh, debtors would uh, flee from, uh, who would, would avoid falling into debt bondage just by fleeing away. Uh, by the 14th century in uh, Mesopotamia, they were called the Hapiru, uh, and they seemed to be the, uh, uh, the predecessors of the Hebrews uh, and uh, uh, Hebrew speakers. And uh, the Hapiru were just uh, uh, sort of like pirate gangs uh, or uh, armed gangs who uh, were, had run away, and they were very egalitarian among themselves. And uh, they said, well, uh, we're not going to let uh, inequality develop as it had developed in the countries that we've run away from. Uh, and uh, a similar uh, thing apparently happened uh, in Italy. People ran out to Rome, and Rome built up uh, a kind of proto-democracy under the kings. But uh, the, uh, the oligarchy overthrew them in 509 BC. And uh, the oligarchs uh, uh, spent uh, the next five centuries trying to fight against uh, anyone who would try to cancel the debts and redistribute the land. And that was the constant uh, cry throughout all of antiquity. Uh, I mentioned a Corinth before. Uh, in uh, Sparta, uh, you had leaders come who would uh, redistribute uh, the lands that they grabbed from the uh, neighboring helots that they enslaved. And uh, they banned money altogether just to prevent uh, debt to the largest amount, uh, uh, largest degree possible. Uh, and finally, in Athens, which was a latecomer, uh, Athens was one of the last uh, city-states to develop 
uh, democratically, and uh, Solon uh, in uh, the uh, early in the fifth century BC uh, canceled uh, uh, um, the uh, uh, the debts that had tied the population to the land, but he didn't redistribute the land. So uh, that was sort of a moderate uh, democracy. And it was the followers, Pisistratus uh, and the sons of Pisistratus, uh, that uh, actually ended up uh, democratizing the uh, uh, the Athenian economy. So uh, the, for the next five centuries, and uh, from Greece uh, all the way to Italy, you had uh, one revolution after another uh, urging uh, exactly the policy that had preserved stability in the Near East. Cancel the debts, redistribute the land, prevent an oligarchy from uh, uh, concentrating all the wealth and all the land uh, in their own hands. Uh, and uh, the uh, in, in Rome, certainly, uh, you have uh, century after century, uh, any popular leader who said, uh, uh, we've got to uh, preserve economic balance by canceling the debts and uh, uh, not letting people lose their land, they were assassinated. Uh, the typical uh, uh, oligarchic political response was violence and uh, political assassination. And that went right down to, uh, to the second century when the uh, the leading uh, reformers uh, uh, were were killed, uh, and finally uh, the Catiline and his army urged at cancellation. He was killed, and finally Julius Caesar was killed uh, because they had feared that uh, uh, he was going to cancel the debts, although he only canceled the debts of uh, the wealthy people, not uh, uh, not really the poor people. So uh, I I find the common theme that made. Uh, Western civilization different from everything that went before uh, was the fact that they didn't cancel the debts, that uh, Western civilization let an oligarchy take over. And instead of the basic rule was that uh, debts have to be written down to the ability to pay, uh, the uh, Rome introduced uh, a pro-creditor law. All the debts have to be paid no matter what the social consequences are, no matter how much uh, society is injured by uh, families losing their land and the land being concentrated, the money being concentrated, the wealth being concentrated, and political power being concentrated in the hands of a creditor oligarchy, uh, uh, a debt is a debt and it has to be paid. Well, the Roman law is... Uh, still the philosophy of modern law. Uh, the whole modern legal system is still based on that of Greece and Rome. And I wrote uh, Roman, Roman history after the uh, Near Eastern history so that you can see how this whole evolution uh, 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 changed uh, from a pro debtor uh, uh, economy in which uh, you had uh, kings and rulers uh, preserving economic balance to Greece and Rome, where in Greece, uh, the word of invective was a tyrant. And if someone wanted to uh, support popular uh, desires to write down the debts or redistribute the land, he was called a tyrant. And in Rome, if someone wanted to cancel the debts and cancel uh, uh, and distribute land, he was called, oh, he's uh, seeking kingship.
Uh, and uh, so the opposition to kingship, the opposition to tyrants, as if somehow uh, that was uh, a destructive of uh, civilization and the economy, uh, became uh, the characteristic of the kind of morality you have today. And that, uh, that, that Roman way of thought, that pro-creditor, pro-oligarchic way of thought is uh, what has really enabled classical historians for the last few centuries to think that, well, uh, our society must have really begun in Greece and Rome. And what began in Greece and Rome wasn't democracy, uh, because as Aristotle pointed out in his study of constitutions, uh, many cities had uh, constitutions that they called democracy, but they were really oligarchies. And Aristotle and also Plato explained how uh, democracies tended to uh, develop into oligarchies as uh, some uh, families developed enough power, uh, enough money, to uh, gain political power, and uh, then the oligarchies made themselves into hereditary aristocracies uh, until finally uh, some one of the aristocratic families fights against the other aristocratic families and takes the public into their camp by uh, uh, looking for public support by canceling the debts and uh, redistributing the land and uh, overthrowing the uh, reactionary oligarchic families that uh, were fighting against uh, this uh, economic progress. And when you look at the long perspective, you realize that this is a thread that goes all throughout uh, history from the very beginning of written records in the third millennium BC, uh, the turning points and the, the, the distinctive economic dynamics that shape politics uh, and economic society are how society has handled the debt. And so uh, this uh, the collapse of antiquity is uh, part of showing how the uh, refusal to write down the debts uh, and the mass assassination of uh, uh, politic politicians who advocated uh, debt write down uh, led to uh, the dark age uh, that uh, bequeathed its uh, uh, philosophy to this day. And uh, the third volume of uh, this uh, sequence will show how we're uh, undergoing today the exactly the same dynamics that tore uh, the Roman uh, Empire apart and ended up uh, impoverishing it, leading to uh, a dark age. That's the same dynamic that we're seeing in uh, Western civilization today. Uh, and the important thing is to realize that it doesn't have to be this way, that the whole rest of the world had uh, re uh, uh, prevented this from happening except for Western civilization. And uh, that Western civilization, instead of being the origins of civilization, turns out to be a detour from uh, the Near East and the uh, Asian uh, civilizations that were able to prevent uh, this kind of financialized dark age from developing. Michael, this is such an important corrective. And I do agree that it's so relevant today, not only considering all of those parallels, but also because a narrative that we've seen emerge in the past several decades is this fetishization of classical Rome. And in fact, you probably haven't seen this, but on social media today, it's popular to see young conservatives and, you know, far right activists will use a Roman statue as the symbol on their social media profile. And there is this idea that you constantly hear among Western conservatives, the concept of, you know, Judeo-Christian civilization, which is somehow conflated with Greek and Roman civilization, even though the Greeks obviously were not 
Christians or Jews and that the Romans weren't Christian until Constantine. But anyway, the point is that there's been this imaginary history, a kind of conservative historiography that's been created that says that we have to go back to these great roots in classical Greece and Rome, but you're pulling that entire rug from under their feet and saying that actually this fantastical vision is not true. And I think one of the most fascinating things about this book that really made me, made me ponder when I was reading it was your use of the term social Darwinism and the concept of oriental despotism. Because we've constantly heard, I remember when I was in public school in the United States, we've constantly heard for many decades and centuries that Asia in particular has been dominated historically by oriental despots, right? Authoritarians and dictators and scare quotes, right? And that's still what we hear today. I, I'm still waiting for these Western commentators to refer to any Western government as authoritarian. It's always China and, you know, maybe Russia, the, you know, the former Soviet Union, but it's always the scary, you know, Asiatic hordes. And now we see even Western media outlets like the Wall Street Journal portrayed Putin as a Mongol, right? So trying to link so-called authoritarianism to Asiatic heritage. Anyway, the point is that you point out in this book that this is rooted in this concept of social Darwinism, which is not actually linked to science or evolution or even Charles Darwin himself, despite the name. It was popularized by Herbert Spencer, who is one of the main influences of the Austrian school of Hayek and all the libertarian right-wing economists, right? So... Can you talk about this concept of oriental despotism, not only in the past, but today? Look at the way that Xi Jinping is portrayed in, in Western media and how when Greece and Rome are portrayed as the beacons of freedom and supposed individual liberty, it's actually not really freedom. It's freedom for oligarchy. That's what they represent, not freedom for average people. It's freedom for the oligarchs to rule society. Well, the concept of Oriental despotism was developed by an embittered ex-communist, Karl Wittfogel, uh, who uh, looked at Stalinism and uh, said, well, Stalinism is an expression of uh, uh, the, uh, the racist uh, Near East. And uh, he said it's the result of irrigated societies. He had an idea that has been universally uh, rejected by all archaeologists. And uh, certainly the five archaeological volumes that I did for Harvard has uh, shown that uh, everything that Wittfogel uh, made up in his mind is uh, just fiction. Uh, Wittfogel said, well, uh, irrigation is such a big project that you need a palace uh, to make a decision. And if you have a central uh, power making a decision, he's going to take over just like Stalin. Uh, we can't have anyone with power. We have to uh, get rid of any kind of singular leader. So Wittfogel just had an obsession with Stalin. Uh, and the fact is that the countries that he described that were despotic were not the irrigated societies. And archaeologists have found that when Babylonia and Mesopotamia, uh, other societies that were irrigated, they were done locally. Uh, they weren't done with a, a, a central planning because you can't centrally plan uh, agriculture very well. It has to be uh, basically uh, local. And the whole idea of Oriental despotism uh, was just depicted up as uh, 
and made into a racist idea that uh, all Asians are just as despotic as Stalin uh, was. And uh, the alternative is uh, American democracy, which means oligarchy and despotism of uh, uh, the ruling class that we have today, uh, the neocons that are fighting in uh, uh, fighting uh, in uh, the proxy war in, in Ukraine. So you, you've had a kind of Orwellian uh, turnabout of phrasing and where uh, the Romans uh, denounced kings for trying to protect the people and the uh, Greeks uh, support uh, uh, had tyrants uh, for, uh, liberating populations from debts. Uh, today we say any, uh, with uh, President Biden, any uh, uh, country that, where there's a strong leader that wants to build up living standards and prevent an oligarchy like uh, China is doing is a despotism. So uh, today, any attempt at democracy is called despotism. And uh, uh, any uh, despotic country, such as the United States and the client dictatorships that uh, put in Latin America and uh, Ukraine, uh, is called a democracy uh, that has nothing to do with uh, rule by the people. It means rule by uh, a very centralized, uh, uh, small uh, oligarchic uh, ruling class uh, that maintains power by assassinating uh, everybody who uh, doesn't uh, uh, agree with it and doesn't agree to be uh, colonized. So uh, y y when you see how the language has been changed uh, throughout uh, history and uh, uh, you, you realize that we're living in a kind of inside-out world, sort of like a Mobius strip uh, uh, ending up on the other side uh, of things as, as uh, you go through everything. Yeah, very well said. And Michael, a really interesting point that you make in this book that I had really not considered in the past is the role of kings and how obviously, I mean, we're not monarchists. We're not trying to defend monarchies. There's a lot of reasons to oppose monarchies. It's ridiculous to think that someone should rule a society simply because they had the luck of being born in the right family. But you point out that the central authority of a king was often a check on the power of the oligarchy and how oligarchs didn't want to spend money on social programs and infrastructure. And they wanted the state to be weak because a strong state could serve as a check on their political and economic control. So when I read your book, it also made me think of a book by Michael Parenti, which is the assassination of Julius Caesar, where he talks about the demonization of Caesar by the Senate, which was controlled by the oligarchs in Rome. So without obviously defending monarchies, I mean, we're not monarchists. I'm wondering if you could talk about the battles that happen between the economic oligarchy and certain kings, not all, but certain kings. Well, in the early Bronze Age, in the third millennium and second millennium BC, societies couldn't afford a, uh, a selfish ruling class that kept all of the power in its own hands. Because if you kept all the power in your own hands and you indebted everybody to yourself, everybody would get up and leave. They'd just uh, flee or they'd overthrow you and replace you with another uh, uh, king. And uh, tribal societies often will uh, choose a, uh, uh, a local tribal leader, maybe from another tribe. And if the tribal leader becomes very uh, selfish, uh, they'll get rid of him sometimes violently, and replace them with somebody who uh, really serves society as a whole. Well, you can do this in small-scale societies, and you could do this in the third and the second millennium BC, 
but by the first millennium BC, with the rise in wealth, society could afford to have a ruling class and uh, could afford not to depend on its own citizenry to man the army. They could afford to uh, uh, hire uh, mercenaries. And so uh, certainly if you read the Jewish Bible, uh, that's really the first history where you realize kings were bad. Uh, and uh, the Jewish Bible describes uh, uh, the kings as uh, really uh, becoming frontmen for the domestic oligarchy. Instead of uh, the kings checking the oligarchy uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, Judea, uh, they became uh, sponsors of the oligarchy, which is why Israel uh, withdrew and said, what uh, interest do we have in the house of Jesse, meaning uh, uh, David and uh, uh, the, the uh, Judaic. So you, you could look at Jewish history as part of the class war of debtors against uh, uh, against uh, uh, the creditors. And uh, the fact is that uh, after the Roman kings were overthrown, obviously in the 5th century, 4th, 3rd, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st centuries, nobody was going to make a king of Rome. Nobody was going to make a tyrant of, uh, of the Greek lands, but they kept using the word for tyrant and a king for anyone who represented the democratic popular interest. Uh, the, the objective of the Roman oligarchy was to prevent anything democratic from developing. And the Roman uh, election system weighted the voting according to how much land uh, you owned. It's very much like uh, voting in America today, when the voting is according to how much uh, money the campaign contributors can give to the Democratic or Republican parties, and that determines uh, really their policies. Uh, uh, the voting in Rome was weighted so that, uh, that when the wealthiest uh, groups of the population had uh, voted first, uh, it didn't really matter what uh, the uh, population with lower land holdings and lower financial wealth had because uh, uh, the wealthy classes had already outvoted everybody else and uh, they held on to power uh, with an iron fist and by and the iron fist was uh, a very violent fist uh, from the very beginning as soon as the uh, kings were overthrown in Rome uh, you had uh, the uh, secession of the plebs. The plebs said, "Wait a minute! You're uh, uh, now the oligarchy's taken over. You're grabbing our land. You're in, you're uh, reducing us to debt. You're reducing us to bondage. We're going to leave." You know, Rome was populated by people coming there when it was a nice place to live. Not a nice place anymore. They walked out. They negotiated. Uh, and thought that they had an agreement, but uh, it didn't turn out to hold very well. So 50 years later, around 450 BC, there was another walkout and uh, there were repeated secessions uh, of Rome, but really the Roman uh, population didn't have anywhere to go in Italy because the lands at that time had become much more filled up than they were thousands of years earlier when uh, anybody who didn't, uh, uh, who uh, was enslaved could simply run away and you could find someplace nice to live with other people without much money that uh, treated each other fairly and said, okay, let's not have any bosses here. Let's uh, run society for ourselves. Well, uh, that kind of uh, egalitarian society ended uh, in uh, the first millennium BC and uh, a king wouldn't have helped. What you needed was a political system that would enable people to uh, be elected to uh, run society in a way that it would not be impoverished by concentrating uh, all the wealth in the hands of a creditor class by getting everybody in debt 
and then foreclosing uh, on them. Uh, the uh, the Romans were against, uh, were very much like uh, the Republicans or uh, President Biden today. They don't want to spend money on public uh, services or social spending. They want it to be done through charity. So it, it's up to the wealthy people to decide who to support and how much to support. That whole spirit of charity was uh, their alternative to uh, public responsibility, making uh, a means of self-support uh, a uh, public uh, uh, right, a uh, making the land a public utility, making credit a public utility. Uh, anything wanting to make a basic need a public utility was called, well, that's what the kings tried to do uh, back in the uh, 7th and 6th century BC. That's what the tyrants tried to do. And we certainly don't want that because look where that led to. That led to democracy. You can't have that. You've got to have autocracy. And uh, we, we're for freedom. We're for the freedom of the wealthy people to do whatever we want. We're for the freedom of the creditor to indebt the debtor. That was the Roman concept of freedom. And they said just that those words again and again and again. The freedom of the wealth to uh, uh, en enslave and ensurf uh, uh, the poor. The freedom of uh, creditors to write the laws that all the debts have to be paid and uh, uh, if you can't pay it, uh, you end up in bondage. That was the uh, the Roman concept of freedom, and it is becoming once again the concept of freedom throughout the uh, uh, throughout the West, certainly among the the U.S. NATO West. And that's why the the Americans fear uh, what's happening in China and now the rest of the of Asia. The re rest of the countries are trying to uh, get rid of all of this. Yeah, that's a very good point, and and I think. The, the main point that I take away from that discussion of, of how the oligarchs often saw certain kings as a threat to their power is simply also, it's not, it's not a glorification of monarchism, but also the importance of central authority and being able to discipline these, the wealthy classes. Because the more you have decentralized authority, the more, the more, that the oligarchs are able to dominate society and enslave the debtors and uh, extract rent from them. Um, Michael, another point that I thought about a lot when I was reading your book is the importance of who is telling the story in history, especially when we're going back thousands of years and hist historiography, right? And there's this famous quote that, uh, you know, history is written by the, the victors, right? And when you think, for instance, about the way that classical Rome is portrayed, figures like Cicero are often relied on, or, you know, actually also pronounced Cicero, Cicero. Um, but in fact, he was one of the most reactionary figures in Rome at the time. He represented the oligarchs against the interests of the people, of the workers, and he was against popular reforms to help working people and represented the wealthy oligarchs that controlled the Roman Senate, as you show in your book. But Cicero is constantly quoted by Western historians as a legitimate source on Roman history, as if we can simply rely on what this deeply political figure was saying about the time he was living in. So what does this also say about historiography, not just today, but for hundreds of years, about the way that historians have written about Rome and also Greece? 
Well, my book describes how Cicero uh, was exiled for uh, murdering uh, politicians who he didn't like in violation of Roman law. Even Roman law, uh, with its assassinations, uh, did not uh, permit uh, uh, the uh, the murder of people who didn't agree with them. And from his exile, uh, uh, right after uh, Caesar uh, was assassinated, uh, Cicero wrote to the uh, senators who killed them. He was so sorry that he was not there that he could not plunge another knife into Julius Caesar. Uh, so that's where he stood. And finally, uh, Octavian uh, and uh, the uh, the heirs of uh, Caesar, when there was a civil war after Caesar was killed, uh, finally hunted uh, down Cicero, who had his own army trying to take over uh, Italy. They, they uh, seized him in the army and they uh, beheaded him. Uh, uh, they fi they finally uh, uh, put him to death. So uh, this and uh, of course he's uh, uh, he's made into a saint by the reactionaries because what what uh, Cicero did this wanted to do to Caesar well, the the murders that Cicero did is just what Western civilization would like to do to uh, to uh, President Xi of China to President Putin of Russia uh, that's their philosophy uh, so of course they love him and they say that's what Western civilization can do you cannot prevent uh, a uh, check on the oligarchy if you're not willing to assassinate everybody who doesn't agree with you you're either for us or against us, as George W. Bush said. Uh, so, of course, that's the philosophy that uh, uh, looks at, at uh, uh, Kikoro, uh, who uh, did everything he could in the Senate, uh, along with uh, his colleagues, to sort of prevent the uh, the uh, supporters of democracy, uh, the advocates of debt cancellation, from bringing anything to a vote, uh, they uh, they would uh, find that there was a uh, an omen in the sky. Oh, we saw birds flying the wrong way. That means there can't be a vote. It's it's bad luck. Uh, the uh, the the role of religion in uh, just uh, preventing uh, uh, the Senate from uh, making any rule when even the senators said, uh, we can't go on this way. If we go on this way, there's going to be a dark age and uh, uh, we're going to be a slave society. Uh, uh, Cicero and uh, uh, his, his colleagues uh, did everything they could to uh, uh, prevent any uh, reform that would have uh, prevented a dark age. In terms of Rome, Michael, another very interesting point that you discuss in this book is how, in many ways, the European feudal system had its origins in the Roman system, specifically of what was referred to as the colonus, which was the tenant farmer. that So a farmer that was working land that belonged to a landlord, which is very similar to the serf that serves the feudal lord, right? And you described how Roman emperors raised funds by selling off public land, and eventually they ran out of land to sell. And you, you use this term that you've also used to refer to the mass privatizations in the former Soviet Union, gravitization. You know that when the Roman Empire and the Golden Age ended, it ended through raw gravitization that hollowed out its polarized economy. So can you talk about what led to the collapse of the Roman Empire and specifically how this system, this colonist system in which you had these tenant farmers helped give birth essentially to European feudalism? 
Well, the, uh, I have to begin at the beginning of your question. Uh, the, uh, the public land of Rome was land that it conquered from foreigners. It wasn't its own land, which was already owned. It was uh, land that you conquered. And uh, the big turning point in Roman history were the wars with Hannibal uh, from Carthage uh, that ended around uh, 200 uh, BC. And uh, Rome had had a, uh, was really fighting for its life against Carthage and Hannibal. And uh, it asked uh, for contributions and uh, in order to uh, uh, contributions of gold and silver jewelry to melt down in coin to pay the mercenaries and pay the army to uh, support it to fight uh, against Hannibal. So uh, the uh, wealthy families uh, uh, around 210, 208 uh, BC uh, contributed uh, money to the uh, uh, to Rome and uh, the, our word money comes from the temple of Juno Moneta, uh, where the uh, mint uh, uh, was situated and where money uh, was coined uh, uh, in Rome. And uh, when the wars were all over, then uh, one of the oligarchic families said, well, we, uh, we gave you all this money. Uh, we won the war. We should really be the winners, because it was because of our money that we won the war. Uh, it wasn't really a, a gift. Uh, let's treat it as a debt. And so uh, uh, Rome said, okay, we'll We'll owe you the money. Write down, you know, all the jewelry you gave. We'll give you, uh, uh, we'll give you uh, back all the money that uh, you contributed to the the war that we thought was uh, progressive taxation. And uh, they uh, said, well, it turns out we've spent all the money on mercenaries and fighting. Uh, all we have is the land that we've conquered. So uh, they gave uh, Rome gave the land to the uh, wealthiest families. And Arnold Toynbee. Uh, in his book, uh, Hannibal's Revenge, uh, is one of the, uh, the best uh, Roman uh, classical historians and uh, said this was really the turning point of Rome. And the revenge was that by winning the war against Carthage, uh, Rome uh, seized the land that gave, it gave to the uh, wealthiest families that uh, used their wealth to fight and uh, take over the whole economy and turn it from just a, uh, uh, a small oligarchy to a really vicious armed uh, police state uh, oligarchy that uh, uh, Rome uh, went on to uh, uh, thoroughly destroy not only Carthage, but also uh, uh, the, the Greek Athens and uh, Sparta uh, and the other uh, Greek states. And uh, uh, to especially uh, Rome fought against uh, the Spartan kings, uh, Aegis and Cleomenes, who tried to uh, cancel the debts uh, and uh, in order to uh, create uh, uh, their own citizen army again. And the Romans uh, saw uh, Sparta uh, canceling the debts as the great uh, uh, threat and uh, uh, destroyed it along with uh, the rest of Greece. And even after that, uh, there were uh, the rest of uh, uh, the uh, the Greek territories uh, tried to cancel the debts, and Rome just uh, came in and really just destroy destroyed Greece over the next uh, uh, fifty years, from about two hundred to uh, one fifty BC. So uh, that was uh, the sort of prototype for making uh, the large latifundia. And the latifundia, or what uh, uh, was uh, said, uh, the latifundia have destroyed 
uh, Rome, and it's because uh, the Latifundia, uh, the land ownership, staffed with uh, first debtors and then tenant farmers uh, who needed to uh, take work on a farm in order to get enough uh, food to eat and, and subsistence. Uh, that really became the prototype for uh, what became feudalism under uh, 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 the empire. Michael, another very interesting part of your book, which is also discussed in your in the first book in this trilogy and forgive them their debts, is the role of Christianity. And you explain how Christianity emerged as a revolutionary social force and how the early Christians preached the importance of debt forgiveness and also were essentially dissidents against the Roman Empire. You quote, Matthew 5.10 in the Bible, which says, blessed are those who suffer persecution on account of justice. However, you note that that quickly shifted in the 300s. In 311, Rome ended the ban on Christianity. In 321, Constantine converted to Christianity and he made Christianity the state religion. And then you, you describe how Christianity, essentially the leaders of the church, essentially encouraged this ideology that was the ideology of the Roman Empire in support of the oligarchs, completely doing a 180 politically. So can you talk about the or origins of Christianity as a revolutionary force that preached against debt and how Christianity was essentially co-opted by the Roman Empire and the church essentially changed its doctrine and became a, a force for oligarchy. Well, by the first century BC, there was a, a pretty much of a conflict uh, within uh, Judea between creditors and debtors. Uh, and uh, you had uh, the wealthy, uh, wealthiest Jewish families uh, supporting uh, a group of uh, uh, scholars, uh, the rabbinical uh, school. Uh, who uh, de developed the idea of, uh, uh, wanted to get rid of everything in the Jewish Bible that called for debt cancellation. Uh, and you had Rabbi Hillel uh, credited with uh, developing a clause that if borrowers uh, would uh, borrow money, they would uh, sign a, that, uh, an agreement that if uh, the jubileer uh, fell, they uh, would not take advantage of it and would not uh, ask for the debts to be canceled and the lands to be given back. Uh, well, uh, there was a whole group of people who apparently uh, 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 that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that were followers of Melchizedek and uh, others who uh, wanted to uh, preserve the uh, the jubilee year. And uh, Jesus uh, was uh, one of these people who wanted to restore the jubilee year. And in his very first sermon that he gave when he went to the synagogue and unrolled the scroll of Isaiah uh, and read about uh, the, the year of the Lord uh, restoring uh, the, uh, the the land uh, to the people, uh, Jesus said uh, the year of the Lord was the Jubilee year. And Jesus said that was his uh, destiny. Uh, that was what he had come to proclaim. And uh, that was uh, immediately uh, the uh, the wealthy oligarchs of Israel went to uh, the Romans uh, who governed uh, the country and said, uh, we know you don't like kings because kings want to cancel the debt. Well, 
Jesus says he's the king of the Jews. Uh, he's doing just what you don't like kings to do. He wants to cancel the debts. Won't you kill him? Because uh, uh, we really can't kill him. That's not our philosophy. Uh, so and uh, indeed, uh, Jesus was killed, but the movement that he started uh, obviously went on and rather transformed uh, form under uh, uh, many of, uh, of his followers. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, it went on and uh, uh, it spread uh, throughout uh, the Near East and to uh, Rome. And uh, many of the uh, wives of the emperors and the wives of the oligarchs uh, thought that uh, uh, this was uh, very fair and converted their husbands uh, to Christianity. And uh, it ended up, uh, indeed, that uh, the emperor Constantine made uh, Christianity the state religion. Well, there's a problem when uh, in making uh, Christianity a state religion of a state that is built on absentee land ownership and pro-creditor laws. What are you going to do? Well, uh, one of the uh, central points that was uh, retained in Christianity was uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with the Lord's Prayer and forgive them their debts. And uh, the word used was monetary debt. Uh, uh, we have the early translation of uh, the, uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible into uh, Greek, and uh, that's it's very clear. The word they used was for monetary debt. Well, uh, the problem with the Romans uh, was, well, now that we've made uh, uh, the uh, Christian religion, uh, we've got to have something to do with Jesus. Uh, we can't get rid of uh, Jesus altogether. Uh, how, what can we change? Well, uh, the, the big change occurred uh, uh, with uh, the transformation of Christianity in North Africa. And it was transformed by uh, two people in particular. One was Cyril of Alexandria, uh, who uh, realized that you have to kill every intellectual who can read uh, the Bible. Uh, he he, uh, he uh, led. Uh, he was an anti-Semite who said we've 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 got to free Christianity from everything that has a Jewish background. Uh, and he developed uh, uh, assassination programs against the Jews. Uh, he killed uh, the uh, uh, the. Uh, mathematician woman Hypatia uh, by sending his thugs down to the beach and uh, cutting away all of her skin uh, with shells. And he developed the concept of the Trinity uh, that sort of got rid of everything about Jesus being a human being fighting a class war as a political uh, reformer. He said, well, you know, Jesus is really God. He wasn't a human. It's all God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. They're all the same thing. And he re he wrote uh, the whole Nicene Creed by uh, convening a, a Christian council and uh, uh, basically uh, uh, killing uh, the people who uh, didn't agree with him. Uh, but the real villain in Christianity, uh, whose uh, hope uh, was uh, uh, St. Augustine, uh, and St. Augustine, essentially, uh, in North Africa, there was a whole fight uh, 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 while Christianity was uh, being made uh, the religion. The Romans were fighting against the Christians in North Africa, and uh, they insisted in confiscating all of the uh, Bibles and the, uh, the holy books of the Christians and the Jews, uh, and uh, there was a, a, a whole anti-Roman uh, op opposition there. Uh, well, Augustine, uh, once uh, uh, Christianity was uh, made the official religion, there was the fight. Who are, what group in North Africa 
are the Romans going to support when they say, okay, you can build Christian churches now. Uh, we're going to give money uh, to the Christians to build their churches, but uh, who are we going to give it to? Uh, and are we going to give it to the people who said, we don't want the Romans to come and, and kill us? Or are we going to give it to uh, people who say, well, uh, you know, I'm going to get rid of all this uh, uh, debt cancellation talk. So uh, Augustine, uh, essentially, the, uh, the people who were representing the old-fashioned Christians were called the Donatists. And uh, they were opposed by the Augustinians. And uh, the Donatists sort of asked uh, the Romans to, won't you come in and get rid of these newcomers? Uh, Augustine and his uh, gang are not us. Well, Augustine said, look, uh, yes, indeed, send in the army, but I want you to kill all the people who don't agree with me. Uh, and uh, they said, well, what's the disagreement about? And Augustine, I'm summarizing uh, vastly the chapter that I explained this in. Uh, Augustine said, well, they think that uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount was uh, and the Lord's Prayer is about cancel the debts. It's really not. It's all about uh, the sin of egotism, especially sexual egotism. Uh, it's about uh, uh, basically uh, yeah, we're all sinful and uh, there's nothing you can do. That uh, These, these uh, Christians uh, want the wealthy people to give their money to the poor. Uh, we can't have that. If they give the money to the poor, there's only one kind of poor they can give them to. The poor churchmen who are part of my church, not their, for, their church. Uh, but they have to give the money to uh, the church or the only poor, uh, spokesman for the poor. So don't give it to the poor. Give it to the church who are the spokesman for the poor. So that, of course, they could live in the kind of luxury that uh, Augustine uh, uh, lived in. And uh, basically, the uh, the Lord the uh, Lord's prayer was uh, forgive us our sins. And Augustine had a whole fight with uh, uh, northern uh, Christians, and, and they said, wait a minute, uh, people can live a good life and not be say, say, uh, sinful. And Augustine, no. Everybody is uh, a sinner. Uh, they have to uh, get rid of their sins by giving their money to the church, by what uh, later the medieval church would call in indulgences. You have to buy indulgences to get rid of the sin that's inborn with Adam. This inborn sin with Adam has nothing to do with a creditor. It has to do with being egotistical and keeping your money and not giving it to, to me, the church. Uh, and uh, the uh, great uh, scholar who studied this whole period, uh, uh, Brown, uh, said that in effect, you should look at uh, St. Augustine is uh, the founder of uh, the Inquisition, uh, as I go into in uh, uh, my, my later books. And so basically you had uh, a cleaning, you had from North Africa, uh, a, uh, a de-Christianizing of uh, the Christian church. And uh, you did have a Welsh uh, 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 reformer try to say that, uh, uh, no, you don't have to live a sinful life. You can live a moral life and uh, be a Christian. And uh, uh, Augustine uh, uh, had him uh, excommunicated. Uh, and uh, all, the, all the books of the Donatists have been uh, destroyed. Uh, the books of the uh, uh, the opponents of Augustine have all been burned. Augustine started the book burning, saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to burn every book that's not Christian. Uh, he was, uh, 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 he turned Christianity into a religion of hate, uh, hatred against, uh, of total autocracy and authoritarian control. And uh, that, uh, you, uh, that's part of what uh, ended up, uh, it ended up making Rome a, uh, 
a sort of outlier by uh, the end of the fifth uh, century, when my book uh, uh, sort of ends, you had uh, uh, five centers of Christianity, called, uh, bishoprics, uh, uh, the, the five bishops. There were the, the leader, uh, the leading uh, part of Christianity was in Constantinople. Uh, be, be, because after all, it was Constantine that had uh, made Christianity the state religion. Uh, they pretty much uh, retained uh, the original Christian religion. Uh, you had Antioch, uh, you had uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, and uh, then you had, uh, as an outlier, uh, Rome that was sort of ended up being taken over by uh, local families, and uh, it became sort of a backwater until the uh, 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 the 11th century. So uh, you, you had the whole essence of Christianity transformed and uh, turning it away from a pro-creditor, uh, from a pro-debtor religion into a pro-creditor uh, uh, religion and an authoritarian religion, uh, essentially uh, denouncing everything that had been the original Christianity. And a key question in this discussion of the development of Christian thought and ideology is the question of usury, of exorbitant interest being charged on debtors by the creditors. There, uh, there was no... Uh, different, there were no words in any ancient language to distinguish usury from interest. There was the same word. The idea that usury is uh, charging above the interest rate is a modern concept, only uh, only dating from the 12th century. Uh, the, uh, interest was interest. Usury was usury. They were all the same, the same idea. No distinction. Thank you for that clarification. Um, something that you do point out in the book is that in 325, at the Council of Nicaea, the church banned the practice of usury by members of the priesthood. However, that didn't actually, wasn't really implemented later in the future. And you discuss how the church ended up supporting the Roman oligarchy. That was in 300 when they banned it. I mean, of course, we had 2,000 years of development since then. Can you talk about how the question of usury has developed over time within Christianity and how we get to today, you know, especially with the rise of Protestantism and Calvinism, where many Christians, especially in the U.S., basically think that getting as rich as you can through any means you can, including usury, including exploitation of the poor, is totally fine. And uh, there's nothing ungodly about exploiting poor people. Well, that's the topic that I talk about in the third volume that I'm working on now, uh, The Tyranny of Debt, which picks up the story uh, with the Crusades uh, and really with the uh, Reformation of uh, uh, Christianity in the uh, 11th century. Uh, the, uh, as I said, in the 10th century, uh, there was something that the Catholic Church itself calls the pornocracy. Uh, the rules of the concubines, uh, the rules of the, uh, uh, it comes from pornography, uh, uh, the totally corrupt uh, family uh, from Tusculum near the uh, Alban Hills near Rome uh, uh, controlled uh, who was going to be pope, uh, uh, just like they would appoint the local uh, mayor and the local policeman or whatever, they'd appoint uh, the local pope or one of themselves. And you had uh, their own family members monopolizing uh, the, the papacy. Well, uh, gradually, uh, they uh, other 
other Christians uh, said, we've got to reform this, especially the Germans. Uh, the Germans said, well, we've got to sort of uh, reform the papacy and take over and make it uh, uh, introduce Christianity into the Roman church. Uh, and uh, the the, uh, the Romans, meanwhile, had to cope with the Norman invasions coming in. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the Normans were uh, came through France, uh, down uh, into uh, Italy, and uh, were threatening to grab the Papal States. The Papal States were uh, uh, the uh, Middle Italy uh, from uh, about Naples almost all the way up uh, to Venice. And... Uh, so uh, you, you had uh, one of the popes make a deal with uh, a Norman warlord, Robert Guiscard, and said, uh, we, will, uh, get, we will sanctify your rule if, we, if you will take over Sicily and uh, southern Italy uh, and uh, uh, work with us, uh, the popes, we will sanctify your rule, and, uh, but you have to pledge to, uh, that you're a fief of Rome and that we are our feudal masters. So Robert Guiscard did this in uh, uh, 1059. Uh, and then later in uh, 1066, uh, the year in which uh, William the Conqueror conquered England, uh, uh, William made a deal with uh, uh, Rome. And Rome said, okay, well, uh, we're going to make the same deal with you that we made with Robert Guiscard. Uh, we're going to make you the legitimate king uh, with a divine right to rule. Uh, and in exchange, you have to uh, pledge fealty to us. And by the way, make sure you keep uh, paying us uh, uh, the Peter's pence that you have to pay tribute to us. And uh, uh, you have to let us appoint the bishops so that we can make sure that uh, because the bishops are in charge of your churches, they will send all the money from your churches to Rome. You can have the land, but uh, we control the churches, and uh, they have more land than uh, than you're able to conquer because uh, you uh, you have to let the land be independent. And so uh, the uh, the uh, Roman papacy uh, began to. Uh, have dreams of becoming an emperor. Well, uh, Gregory VII passed something called the Papal uh, uh, Dictates and said, uh, we've announced uh, a new uh, uh, revolution in Christianity. Once, instead of having the five bishoprics all uh, in common, uh, uh, having a uh, collective uh, Christianity, there's only one, uh, uh, one center, that's Rome. We are uh, the only ones who can uh, uh, approve uh, the German emperor or uh, the kings. All other churches have to obey us. And by the way, you have to believe our uh, theology and you can't have your theology. And uh, uh, when uh, the other bishops like uh, Constantinople objected, Rome ex expelled them. And Rome ended up excommunicating almost all of the uh, Christians who didn't pledge feudal loyalty uh, uh, to Rome. And uh, uh, obviously, there was a whole threat. The Germans were getting ready to uh, uh, invade Rome and to fight with uh, uh, against the, the Normans, who uh, essentially acted as uh, the army uh, of the Pope. Uh, and so the, uh, the Pope said a, a brilliant idea. Uh, in 1295, they, uh, in, I'm sorry, in 1095, they said, let's, uh, in order to uh, show how, uh, that we're really the leaders of Christianity, let's uh, start the Crusades to the east. Let's uh, say uh, there's a great, vast Christian uh, fight, and that's to drive the Muslims out of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, and we've uh, essentially, uh, the Pope uh, discovered what uh, 
uh, uh, Goebbels discovered in Nazi Germany. Uh, if you tell a country that they're under attack, you can always get them uh, to support you're going to war. And uh, the Crusades essentially did indeed send an army uh, to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And that was uh, how the uh, Knights Templar and the Hospitallers were created. Uh, that's how the fighting uh, military orders uh, were formed. Uh, and they were all together, uh, many Crusades, some say nine, but there were actually many more than nine. Most of the Crusades were not against uh, uh, the uh, infidels, the Muslims in the East. The Crusades were against other Christian states. They were to prevent other Christian states having a Christianity that was not Roman Christianity and not uh, pledging loyalty to, uh, to uh, the Roman Pope. So even the Catholic Encyclopedia describes how uh, evil uh, the popes were. And uh, they attacked uh, the, uh, one of the cultural centers of Europe was uh, southern France, uh, the area around Toulouse, the Albigensians. And so uh, the uh, the Pope made uh, a deal with uh, uh, the uh, fr uh, fr uh, fr northern French to conquer uh, the Cathars, and uh, they formed uh, the Inquisition under the Dominicans, and uh, they, they killed um, the whole uh, flowering of intellectual culture of the troubadours, of the poets and the musicians, uh, uh, because all the poetry and the music were songs against uh, the papal uh, Inquisition, trying to defend themselves, and they they wiped out uh, the whole of the Cathars. Uh, then they they fought uh, against uh, southern Italy, uh, against the Muslims, and uh, fought in uh, again in Sicily. Uh, they fought in Spain. They they uh, especially they fought against Germany. They kept uh, excommunicating uh, the German emperors, saying you're you're not Christian because you won't let us uh, appoint the popes. Well, all of these wars that went on uh, for two hundred years required money. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, as they got more expensive, you had to begin to build navies and you had to hire mercenaries. And uh, the question is, how are they going to raise the money? Well, uh, originally, William the Conqueror and other people had, uh, when they conquered England, uh, they, they, this was not really a foreign trade-oriented uh, society. And so William uh, invited uh, Jewish merchants in uh, to help uh, help. Uh, commercialize and monetize uh, uh, the economy, uh, and uh, they uh, began. They were. They also made loans in addition to uh, developing markets for the grain to turn the crops into uh, payments for money that uh, essentially the church or the king could use uh, to fight wars. So, uh, 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 but you needed uh, much. Uh, they didn't make uh, many loans really uh, to kings. Uh, what were you, the big debtors? The people who needed money to fight the wars were the kings uh, and also the churches. That, uh, that Rome said you uh, you you have to uh, raise money to uh, uh, so that we can kill the Christians, uh, the other, the non-Roman Christians. Uh, and so uh, they needed to find Christian creditors. And so the Romans, uh, Romans organized North Italian and Transalpine, uh, they were called Cahorsine, uh creditors. And the, the popes would send their agents uh, throughout England and other areas with a, a IOU statements promising to pay uh, uh, to pay uh, uh, interest to exorbitant interest to uh, the uh, these uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, moneylenders. Well, uh, the the uh, 
the kings uh, agreed to do this, and they raised the money to pay the interest by essentially confiscating whatever money the Jews had. And after confiscating the money that Jewish merchants had in uh, England and France, they then expelled the Jews. Uh, and the problem uh, that uh, the uh, Italians complained again and again was that the Jews made more uh, made loans at a lower interest rate than uh, the Christians charged, and uh, you can't have uh, their competition. The Jews were driven out of England and France, not for the reason that you usually read in the books that they were usurers. It's because they were not usurers. They had no more money to lend to lend uh, for uh, uh, to anyone because it was all grabbed by the, uh, the kings and the, and, uh, the church. And uh, you had, again, the Dominicans came and said, uh, we need a society that has one set of rules and only one set of rules. Uh, there can't be any Jews in our society. There can't be any Muslims. There's only one way of straight thinking. And that's what the Inquisition says is a state thinking. That's why we've killed the Cathars in France. That's why we've, uh, uh, we're fighting against the others. And uh, this may seem normal today because it's how America is treating the rest of the world. Uh, and yet, uh, this was completely different from the whole way in which uh, uh, the Muslims, uh, the Jew Near Eastern lands, the Jewish lands, all of the, uh, the Muslims in Sicily and uh, uh, the uh, Byzantines and uh, uh, South Italy had all been a multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, 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 society. There was a, a tolerance. The, the, the first intolerance that you have in a society of driving out people that didn't believe what you did was by the Roman Christians who said you can only have one way of thinking and that way of thinking is by Rome and uh, the popes that uh, did this were uh, essentially, they wanted to be em emperors. And uh, so you had the churchmen, uh, uh, the theologians, uh, largely from Paris, uh, come and say, we've got to develop some logic where it's uh, economically uh, legitimate uh, to charge, in uh, uh, not usury, but let's call it interest. Uh, and uh, interest is what the Christian charged Usury is what non-Christians charged, even if uh, the rate of interest was much higher than the rate of usury. And uh, they would have things that uh, uh, later became uh, the basis of uh, the University of Chicago School uh, of Economics. Uh, uh, you had, uh, they said, well, if there's a risk, uh, then you can charge interest for risk. And if, uh, uh, if you're making a loan to somebody and he doesn't pay you on time, you could have used that money if he'd repay you on time to make a profit. Uh, and if you lose the profit, of course, you uh, can charge the profit. And that's not, for, even though that's much higher than the nominal interest rate, it's a late fee. Uh, well, we can, we'll do what uh, today's credit card companies do. You may have a 19% rate of interest on your uh, Visa card or MasterCard, but the penalty rate is 29% or even higher. Well, uh, that's what essentially the churchman said uh, it's okay to do. And uh, when I was uh, studying the history of economic thought uh, to get my PhD, uh, they, uh, we had to read what the uh, uh, Christian churchman of the 12th uh, century wrote. And it all seemed very uh, reasonable that, well, if you lose money, you have to make a compensation until I began to read what the actual analysts, uh, the, uh, the the historians of the 12th and 13th century uh, and 14th century were writing. 
meeting. And uh, what they said was, wait a minute, the Pope is sending out these IOUs to the uh, uh, Italian bankers. And uh, it said, uh, you have to pay this, uh, you know, we're going to make this at you know, very low interest, 10% interest, but there's going to be a late fee of uh, 42%. 44%, uh, or if you're really nice, only 22%, but usually 44%. Uh, and the late fee uh, began a month later. So obviously, uh, the uh, the rate of interest was really the late, uh, the, uh, the late fee. Uh, and that was said, well, that's not usury, that's a late fee, and that's all permissible under... Uh, uh, under the theology that we're teaching. And this uh, uh, argument went on uh, until about 1515, when uh, the Medici Pope, Leo, uh, convened a whole uh, Lateran Council and said, well, uh, you know, there's a real problem. Uh, we church people, we uh, uh, Roman Christians are trying to help people by creating a bank, uh, a, a pawn shop uh, bank uh, for the poor, the Mount of Piety, which, by the way, just went bankrupt a few uh, a year ago. Uh, it lasted all these centuries. Uh, and the Mount of Piety wants to uh, pay interest to depositors, and it'll pay low interest to depositors, and then it'll lend out to the poor so that they won't have to depend on these uh, awful uh, 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 wealthy creditors and wealthy usurers. Uh, but uh, the church won't let us uh, pay interest because they say that's uh, uh, the Bible's against interest. Uh, let's get rid of the whole thing. And uh, Pope Leo uh, and the Lateran Council finally uh, got rid of uh, 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 the concept of uh, the uh, any uh, blockage against usury and said, uh, we're going to call it interest now. There's a new word, uh, and with the new word, that makes everything different. Uh, language is magic. Uh, and so that's uh, essentially, it was only later uh, that you had the concept of usury being uh, charging more than the legitimate interest. Uh, but the fact is, that interest was much higher than the usury rate. Uh, that's what uh, is usually missed if you don't actually read what the uh, medieval historians were writing and uh, how they were making fun of uh, this playing with language that the Roman papacy uh, did. And of course, the Roman papacy ended up uh, uh, sending the... Uh, the Fourth Crusade uh, to loot uh, uh, Constantinople and to essentially uh, uh, give 25% of all of the loot to, Be to Venice, who advanced the money to uh, hire the army to uh, uh, loot its way on the way to uh, by robbing Christian uh, cities on the way to Constantinople and uh, then bringing all the loot back uh, to the church. And uh, uh, that made the break between uh, Roman Christianity and uh, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy uh, that we have today lasting forever. Uh, and people don't realize that uh, the Eastern Orthodoxy uh, that uh, survives uh, in uh, 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 in Constantinople is uh, the closest we have to what was the original Christianity. And uh, the Roman uh, Christianity is just a travesty of everything that uh, Jesus was talking about. Incredible history. And I know you'll be discussing all of that in greater detail in the third volume in your trilogy here, looking at the history of debt. I want to conclude our discussion just going back to a point that you did briefly address at the beginning, but I want to highlight it a bit more. And that is that what if we study this economic history, what it shows is that there are alternatives to this system that we have. And of course, you know, the capitalism that was created in the modern era is different from the pre-feudal and feudal systems that we're discussing. But there is 
a common characteristic that ties them together, which is this idea that essentially debt is sacred, that you you that debt must be paid, despite the fact that it's quite literally impossible for the debt to be paid. And it's also economically suicidal. It does damage to the real economy to insist that this debt has to be paid. You point out that there have always been alternatives. And thousands of years ago, if we go back, we can look at the ancient Near East, you know, what would people today call the Middle East and Mesopotamia and the Levant and Northern Africa. And then there were other systems in which debt was regularly forgiven. And we talked about today, of course, there are many different economic models. So I'm just I just want to conclude here again um, with your final thoughts on what we can learn from not only the destructive oligarchical debt-based models that were inherited by classical Greece and Rome, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about the alternatives that have always been there and the alternatives that we have today. Well, under Judaism, the cancellation of debts was sacred. That's why uh, the Jubilee was put right in the center of uh, Mosaic law in Leviticus. Uh, and uh, 2,000 years earlier, under Hammurabi, uh, we have uh, Hammurabi, uh, the stale, uh, getting his laws from uh, the sun god of justice. And uh, uh, Hammurabi's important uh, legal pronouncements were not the, the laws, a set of laws that people call a law code, that really weren't a law code, but it was set of laws, what, what he did that was considered sacred was uh, his uh, coronation ceremony that uh, was the same coronation ceremony that every member of Hammurabi's Babylonian dynasty did. And upon taking the throne, the ruler would uh, proclaim, uh, would cancel the debts, would liberate the bond servants, would re uh, restore any slaves that uh, the creditor had that the debtor had pledged to the creditor would uh, would be returned to the original debtor and uh, return any land uh, that the uh, debtor had lost uh, to the creditor. So you'd restore the status quo ante, and uh, that's why they're called a restoration of order. The ruler would restore order. Uh, and before Babylonia in the second millennium BC, uh, you had the Sumerians from the uh, middle of the third millennium BC. Uh, the first uh, uh, economic records we have were the debt cancellations of uh, Sumerian rulers uh, taking the throne, canceling uh, the personal debts, and uh, uh, proclaiming what uh, I call a, a clean slate. Uh, restoring the lands, restoring, uh, restoring economic balance, because uh, the Babylonians and the ancient societies had uh, an economic model. And uh, the, uh, we have the uh, textbooks that they trained their students in. And the textbooks uh, were uh, much more mathematically sophisticated than anything com that comes out of the National Bureau of Economic Research today. Uh, on the, and I think I've said this on your show before. Uh, on the one hand, the scribes would calculate how fast does a debt grow at compound interest. And every Compound interest uh, uh, multiply is a doubling time. Any rate of interest is a doubling time, and it'll uh, uh, double at and one. Uh, uh, it was in five years in Sumer, quadruple in uh, ten years, uh, multiply uh, eight times in uh, fifteen years. Well, uh, you and sixty-four times by thirty years. Well, you can see how fast that 
the, the deaths went up. We also have their calculation of how uh, fast the material economy grew. Uh, for instance, the herds of sheep, and they were in an S-curve. Uh, and obviously, the Babylonians saw that uh, debts grow faster than the economy at large grows. And how is society going to cope with this problem of debts growing faster than the ability to pay? Well, uh, w uh, if you leave the debts in place, then you're going to have the debtors lose their freedom, their liberty. They're going to have to go to work and work off the debts as labor for uh, the creditors. And that was how uh, the original wage labor was uh, uh, developed. Not as saying, we're going to pay you a salary to work for us. We're going to make you a loan and you're going to have to work off the loan by working off our, and pay interest by uh, uh, working on our land. Uh, that was, uh, and ultimately, uh, they would end up losing the land themselves up to the creditors. And if that would have happened, any society that let that happen, everybody would run away or there would be a social revolution, or they'd simply kill kill the uh, uh, kill the ruler and replace him with someone who would do what other uh, the rest of society had been doing for thousands of years before that, and maintaining economic balance. So uh, you you had this whole philosophy of economic balance being sacred, and uh, all of the uh, Sumerian and Babylonian kings would all say, "This is the ethic." We're Words. Uh, uh, this is uh, debt cancellation is sponsored by the sun god of justice uh, that we're following, and uh, that's why these were there was a calendrical uh, basis for uh, uh, ca uh, canceling uh, uh, many debts, and certainly that developed by the time of the uh, uh, the Jewish religion, which uh, took over the Babylonian debt cancellation word for word. But uh, by that time in Ju uh, in uh, Judea, the uh, kings had. Uh, uh, were no longer sacred, and they'd become uh, part of the oligarchy, and that's why uh, Jewish religion uh, took uh, debt cancellation out of the hands of the kings and put them at, at the very center of its religion uh, in the Jewish Bible, uh, which became the Old Testament for uh, the Christians and were embodied into it. So uh, the question is, uh, what is more sacred? If you make debt sacred, and uh, then you're going to uh, just uh, rationalize the economic polarization of society between creditors and uh, an increasingly impoverished, indebted uh, economy below them. And uh, that kind of society is going to end up the way Rome ended up in a dark age. Uh, and if you want to avoid that, then you have to cope with the fact that uh, you know that debts grow uh, faster and you have to put the ideal of maintaining economic balance as being more important than uh, uh, giving money uh, to the wealthy people. And uh, that's what Socrates wrote about. Uh, that's what Plato wrote about. That's what uh, the Roman historians wrote about. Uh, it's what the Greek uh, dramatists wrote about. Uh, and uh, all of that is uh, uh, transfigured and almost expurgated from the uh, classical histories that uh, we're taught uh, today. Yeah, and, and I would add, I mean, I know you'd agree with this, that when we talk about forgiveness of debt, it's not only within countries and societies between the, the rich and the poor, but it's also between countries. And, you know, there are so many Global South countries that simply can't pay off this debt. It needs to be forgiven. And yet it's used as political leverage to force political policies on these countries and austerity and other policies. So, I mean, it's an extremely important, uh, an extremely important 
point of discussion that I think really needs to be raised is that debts can should be canceled. Can I point out what Socrates said about this? Yeah. Uh, the, the whole plot of the Republic, uh, it begins when uh, Socrates is uh, uh, having a discussion with uh, someone said, uh, uh, should, you know, I owe some, I owe some people uh, some money, should I repay it? And Socrates said, uh, what if, uh, suppose you borrow a weapon uh, from somebody and uh, uh, then he, uh, a sword or something, and he wants it back. Uh, but you know that this person is a violent person. Uh, is it fair to give the weapon back to this person if you know that he's going to use it for an asocial purpose uh, and to hurt society and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, other person says, uh, uh, student says, well, no, I guess uh, that's not fair. And uh, Socrates said, well, the same is uh, true with credit. Uh, suppose you repay a monetary debt uh, to somebody, and uh, this monetary debt is going to make uh, an oligarchy rich, and it's going to make the creditor uh, richer and richer, and he's going to get very egotistical. And uh, once you have a lot of money, you tend to get very self-centered and egotistical, and uh, you have hubris. And uh, the hubris means uh, you are injure other people in order to help your own gain. And if you want to avoid hubris, uh, then you don't want uh, uh, to give the money to wealthy people. And in fact, you don't even want wealthy people uh, to be the people who are running society, like uh, they're threatening to uh, rule uh, Greek society uh, uh, today uh, in the fourth uh, century uh, BC. And uh, so that's really, uh, the, uh, you need uh, to have uh, a ruling class that is not so egotistical and self-centered that it's pushing for its own uh, economic uh, benefit. Well, uh, since you mentioned the third world debt, let's say that you're taking Socrates' position in the Republic today and say, well, uh, you have uh, the global South countries, uh, the global majority countries uh, are uh, saddled with uh, an enormous uh, dollar debt uh, to uh, international bondholders uh, and banks. Well, uh, suppose uh, that you uh, follow Socrates and say, should uh, these countries pay the debts uh, to the banks and uh, to the bondholders if they're going to use uh, the, the dollar debts are all going to be paid the United States and it's going to do what it's doing in Ukraine now. It's going to uh, make proxy wars. It's going to uh, uh, fight uh, in the Ukraine and threaten World War III, uh, just like it's fought in, uh, and turned the Near East uh, very bad, just like it's fought in the whole world to uh, make military bases and uh, hurt the rest of the people. Uh, if uh, you're moral in the, for in the uh, tradition of Socrates, you'd say the third world countries and uh, a global south and global majority should not pay its dollar debts. You cannot enrich a violent country that is acting asocially uh, to destroy uh, other people out of its hubris. Uh, that's the literally the plot of the Republic uh, that Plato wrote to explain uh, Socrates' logic. And uh, I think that would be a wonderful logic from uh, classical Greece to apply to the modern world. But uh, that's not the message of Plato and the Republic that uh, I learned when I went to the University of Chicago for my undergraduate degree. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Uh, we, I was speaking with economist Michael Hudson about his incredible book, the Collapse of Antiquity, Greece and Rome as Civilization's Oligarchic Turning Point. This is an incredible book, 511 pages. 
And it really, for students of economic history, I think this should be required reading. It really is a fascinating read and it really changed the way that I see hundreds of years of history that I didn't know much about. And now I feel uh, like I have a much better grasp. Um, Michael, as we wrap up here, is there anything that you would like to mention or plug before we conclude? I can't think of anything. It'll take me another year to finish uh, the book I'm working now on the clap on uh, uh, the tyranny of debt about uh, how the Middle Ages and the Crusades shaped uh, modern finance. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that book and looking forward to discussing with you when it's out. I will um, link in the description below to Michael's website, michael-hudson.com. And also, he has a Patreon account, so people should go and support him over at Patreon. I will link to that in the description below. And for people who want to read the first book in this trilogy, it's called And Forgive Them Their Debts. I read that a few years ago, and it was also very eye-opening. So I want to thank you, Michael, for joining us for so long and for the very enlightening conversation today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a nice discussion.